Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. The geo in geopolitics is focused not just on topographic features like mountains, rivers, and coastlines, or on concepts like size, shape, and location of countries. It also addresses local, regional, and global patterns of climate and weather, which have long influenced things like agricultural opportunities and development, economic and social characteristics of particular geographies, and even industrial capacity. Think about early evolution of wind and water power. Today, climate issues have a direct geopolitical impact through physical effects, national and international regulation, and social and corporate influence. In today's modern economy, and in today's shifting strategic balance, semiconductors and high-end technology sit at the nexus of strategic policy, economic and technological opportunity, and climate. Joining me today to explore the relationship between climate, strategic competition, and advanced technology is Dr. Rebecca Keller-Friedman. Dr. Friedman has spent more than a decade gaining expertise at the intersection of disruptive technologies and geopolitics. Previously, the Director of Analysis here at RAIN, she is now an independent advisor and analyst. Thanks for joining me today, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me, Roger. So let's let's start um, with that broader uh, uh, geographic concept, right? And of course, there's plenty of debate, and we don't have to go into politics of, of climate, but climate um, has a very significant impact on the way in which regions develop. And just as we see things like technology change, um, as we see political power change, as we see economics change, um, there are climactic shifts and patterns either uh, due to broader uh, elements or to the way in which people utilize these types of resources that have an impact on the development or opportunities of spaces. Um, what are some of the ways that, that you see these, these climate impacts on evolving geopolitical balances? I think there's a couple of different ways. You have the adaptive nature. So how do different regions look at disaster recovery or um, being able to cope with with larger storms or or that kind of thing, and that's really reactive. But there's also the pre- pre- preparatory aspect of it. How do nations, corporations, governments adapt to higher temperatures, less water, um, and often they do this through new technologies um, and and the innovation of those technologies based on their circumstances. So looking at Israel, for instance, it's a country in a very dry climate, but has enabled uh, you know, very advanced water security through technology. So it really is the, the use of technology to adapt to one's changing climate that I see the nexus um, emerging moving forward. Right. And I mean, being based down here in Texas, uh, we know that it would be very difficult to be based down here in Texas had there not been the advent of the air conditioner, which took a particular climactic region that was largely seen as less than desirable and turned it into now a, a, an extremely desirable place to be. So, so technology sometimes uh, facilitates the way in which people adapt and overcome to climate. Uh, technology is sometimes a response to changes. Um, and, and technology is often dependent also on some of these uh, various as- aspects of climate. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, the semiconductor industry. Um, what, is, what is one of the key climactic factors that, that impacts um, wh- where the semiconductor facil- uh, 
industry can be most successful. For sure. Um, and semiconductors are no straight, that industry is no stranger to, to geopolitics and the impact of geopolitics from, from sanctions, from supply chain issues, et cetera. But in terms of climactic dependencies, it's actually a very water intensive industry. And because of that, um, the consideration of what the water stress or water scarcity of a given region is will impact, um, how that industry develops moving forward. Now, there are established powerhouses in the semiconductor industry. There's Taiwan, there's United States, you've got Korea, Japan, a few others um, playing in this field, all of which have different areas of those countries where there's, there's water scarcity issues. But that won't necessarily prevent the development of fabs or the, the building of new fabs in those areas, especially with government initiatives. What it will do um, will change the way that industry, or it is already changing the way that industry approaches new development and new plans. So you're looking at a phrase that we'll probably hear a lot more going forward called water neutral or water positive development, where when these new fab plants are proposed, they're done so where they aren't drawing from already scarce water supplies and, and um, aren't drawing from and competing with agricultural or domestic consumption of scarce water. And this is particularly important right now for the United States and Taiwan. Um, with the CHIPS Act and the new, the new facilities that are already under construction in the United States, Arizona is a, key lo is a key location for those plants. It's becoming a hub for the semiconductor industry in the United States. And it's no secret that Arizona is a desert. So looking at water use and water recycling, the same goes for Taiwan, where uh, a very large drought or very, very severe once in every hundred years drought is currently ongoing there. So both of those powerhouses will be looking at um, water use and water recycling as a key development going forward. Right, and as we look at this, you know, Taiwan has obviously had these these water security problems um, of late, and they've had to make decisions on do they continue to uh, supply water to the to industry? Do they shift water to municipal use? Do they shift water to the agricultural use? Um, this puts some pretty significant strains on government decision making, uh, but also, you know, as as we've noted. This fits into this broader geopolitical competition. Uh, and, and let's step back up to that, and then we'll come back down and, and look a little bit at some of the technologies that are, that are coming out of this. But one of the things that seems to be driving uh, the intensification of concern is not merely the economic advantage of being at the forefront of the semiconductor industry, but there's a real shift in the way in which uh, the United States and China are competing with each other over this. And you mentioned the CHIPS Act and things of that sort, which are uh, designed to help uh, incentivize, but there's also significant restrictions being put on uh, the semiconductor industry in this geostrategic competition between the United States and the Chinese. Absolutely. And there, you know, even with the CHIPS Act, there's the question of how cost feasible, how effective will these new initiatives be? Um, and, and that's covered extensively elsewhere. But really looking at the resources available um, to the 
to overcome this geopolitical hurdle to fight this this tech war um, between the United States and China, that's where it gets down to the nitty gritty, the, the specifics of technology and how, how well each side is able to do that. Right, so we see, we see rising competition. We see a recognition that um, national security, not merely econ not economic security and, and physical security from a national security perspective, are both somewhat dependent upon uh, semiconductors, which have become key to pretty much everything that we deal with and everything we utilize today. It's in military technology, it's in communications technology, um, and whoever is at the forefront of that gains a strategic advantage overall. Uh, that is putting added pressure um, on the the collaboration and cooperation of the United States, the Taiwanese, the Koreans, the Japanese, some of the Europeans, and then the Chinese looking to, to counter that. And we're seeing this push of uh, the expanding production, as you said, in, in Arizona in the United States where there isn't water. Um, what are some of the ways then that uh, companies are, are looking at adapting to these lower amounts of water, and particularly, I would say, in the, in the US, um, in the West, given that now there's a lot of concern, for example, over the future of the Colorado River. Absolutely, and and it's not it's not brand new. Water reuse and water recycling have been a, a part of um, the semiconductors manufacturing plans before um, the CHIPS Act, before the drought in Taiwan, but they've become increasingly prevalent in terms of future plans, in terms of strategic goals, looking at um, targets of 50 to 75 to even 100 percent of water reuse and reclamation. So looking at reverse osmosis technologies, um, biofiltration technologies, ultraviolet uh, filtration technologies to make that ultra pure water that the semiconductor sector needs and be able to reuse it over and over and over again so you're not drawing from the pool and competing with other strategic sectors, be it agriculture or, or other manufacturing. And are these technologies then, as we look at them, are these technologies that will be applicable to other industries. So we're looking at them in the semiconductor industry. Is this something that may later go into um, the agriculture industry? Or are we seeing also, for example, the the in uh, hydraulic fracturing where they're looking at changing water to, uh, water use and water recycling and re, uh, reusing and things of that sort. Are, is there cross-pollination with these technologies? I, I absolutely believe so. Um, you can even see it coming into the the semiconductor uh, manufacturing space. Forward osmosis, or or really that's a redundant phrase. Really, just osmosis um, is a uh, a newer. It's become more feasible in the last ten to fifteen years due to advances in material science. Um, so there's there's that cross pollination even there coming into the semiconductor sector. And as you improve water recycling technology and water reuse technology. Absolutely, that has applications for other water-intensive industries, be it textiles, be it um, agriculture, be it uh, other, other heavy manufacturing. And the ability to have that sort of circular water environment for those manufacturing so you're not competing for um, increasingly limited water resources is something that, that you know, Semiconductors are the tip of the spear in a lot of things with geopolitics right now, but it always filters down. So what is the next 
industry where it comes in. And you're absolutely right. Looking at ag, looking at textiles, looking at other heavy manufacturing. Who's in the lead in developing or designing some of these new water technologies? Um, you know, is and what are the strategic advantages that a country can gain uh, from from being in the forefront of this development? Absolutely. So Israel and Singapore are the traditional leaders in this space. We've seen a lot of research and funding go into uh, into um, United States uh, companies based in the United States as well. But Israel and Singapore really are the two leaders when it comes to um, alternative water resources, be it um, desalination, water recycling, water reuse. Now, if you're a you're a leader in these in these technologies, there is that soft power advantage where you know you have the ability to collaborate and influence using technologies. We see this relationship elsewhere, where where countries or companies based in countries have the ability to collaborate and and utilize that technology to their advantage. I mean, it's kind of what the United States is trying to do with China and semiconductors. They own a lot of the the IP. So um, the same thing could be done with water reuse technologies. It gets a little more complicated because water is obviously considered more of a a right than than a commodity. Um, but that, that same notion applies where that soft power comes into play. And again, it's, it's, it's Israel and Singapore, both of which right now are balancing between the U.S. and China to some degree, um, trying to really play that middle space. Yeah, and if we look at the two countries, I mean, going back to the, 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 the question of geopolitics, um, both of these are relatively small countries. As you mentioned earlier, Israel is uh, fairly arid. Um, it sits near a lot of salt water, but it's a fairly arid space. Singapore is extremely tiny. It's been water dependent on its neighbor Malaysia for a very long time. It's done a lot of work in in uh, cleaning of water and re-entering that water into its reservoir systems to gain some basic life uh, security and national independence from its neighbors. So we have two places that are that have geographic pressures, regional pressures on them, and then have had the economic and technological uh, capabilities uh, in-house to start driving the development of these. Um, The United States maybe has sort of taken its water uh, for granted for a long time um, and now seems to be adjusting in that way. But in some ways, you know, as as you raised Israel-Singapore, there, there are very structural reasons why these may be at the forefront of this technology. Absolutely, it's it's necessity at times. You, you know, you. I think it was you who actually told me the story of Singapore trying to get their population to drink recycled water um, going forward. But yeah, absolutely, it's 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 born of necessity. Innovation is often born of necessity. And. and- when we look at this, we're looking at things like um, uh, water scarcity, uh, and water scarcity has broader um, dynamics. One, we're looking right now here at, at the semiconductor industry. But how are shifting water balances uh, bringing other either opportunities or uh, stresses in geopolitical relations? Yeah, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's falsely attributed to Mark Twain or not, but it's, you know, water, water is the one thing worth fighting over or or something to that effect. I'm totally butchering the quote. Um, But it's not that water scarcity is driving geopolitical conflict um, around the world, but it certainly is contributing to 
increased tensions as any scarcity of resource would. Um, and the increased cost of water, whether it be through um, different technologies that, that then um, need to extract it, which makes the water more expensive, whether or not people are paying for that expense, um, increases the cost of, of everything involved with that water. So there's that economic barrier. And then there's, there's really the the visceral need to support a population. And as water becomes more scarce, um, that, that really comes into play. I think India um, comes top of mind as one place where the availability of usable water is going to be a, a very geopolitical issue in the next decade or two. Right. I know in India, you know, if, as you have some modifications in the monsoon pattern and a lot of agriculture is based on uh, uh, monsoon rains and somewhere up, upwards around 60% of the population is engaged in agriculture. And as you start having to shift that, tapping into the groundwater rather than the monsoons, but you, you, you really have an impact on a large component of the population, both economically and potentially disruptive in the sense of uh, driving certain aspects of migration. We've seen in the past in other parts of the world where a, a long period of, of drought or a period of um, extreme wet or changes in the climactic patterns can contribute to uh, migration patterns can contribute and that migration pattern or that stress pattern can can increase the the likelihood of conflict um, with neighbors absolutely um, and and India really does both geographically and politically sit at the nexus of, of some um, significant potential conflict right now. So that that definitely is a place to watch going forward. Yeah, and and, and I guess we could we could throw in dams. <laughs> um, oh gosh, with, yes. <laughs> you know the, the the questions of of and and dams for good reasons, right? There's there's water security issues, there's hydroelectric power, things like that. But we see dams as a as a driver of of significant uh, concern or competition in many, many parts of the world. Absolutely. And that really gives the advantage to that upstream riparian um, nation. So for India, that's China controlling a lot of those, those dams. You see it in Central Asia, um, where the poorer countries are the ones that are upstream. So they do have that one power lever um, to their advantage. And, in, in, and I think the, the Grand Renaissance Dam might be the, the most uh, apt example of this right now, looking at Egypt and, and the, the North African states there. Right. So, so coming back to um, this, this technology uh, dynamic, um, we, we talk about water as, as a, a key um, you know, input factor in semiconductor manufacturing. And as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, there's kind of three ways that we're seeing these climate impacts immediately play out. One is in the physical impact. So as you've noted, water security, water scarcity, um, and technological ad adaptation to that. Two is in the regulatory space. Um, and some of that may be uh, coming down the pike in, in uh, the US West as there's potential adjustments in allocations of water um, uh, and the third is really in, in social and um, corporate uh, governance initiatives of their own, often trying to either preempt regulatory dynamics or 
to drive regulatory dynamics. What are what are some of the things that we're seeing in in either the regulatory space or um, the the social or governance uh, corporate governance spaces that are playing into this dynamic of uh, water and technology and geopolitical competition? No, absolutely. I think there has been perhaps more attention paid on water infrastructure and the government support for said infrastructure, both in the U.S. and Taiwan um, related. Uh, there's there's numerous um, initiatives within the IRA, actually, that, that look at, at water infrastructure in the West, for instance, and the Taiwanese government is looking at a- aiding their manufacturing and semiconductor sector to build these advanced water reuse and water recycling facilities. But I think um, in terms of you know social consciousness and regulatory effect, we're really seeing a focus right now, it's ESG is the buzzword, right? Um, but seeing a focus on emissions and emission standardization. So how do you track it? How do you um, know how much you know, pollutant or uh, carbon emissions are going into the air and, and what is counted against a company and what isn't? Now, that standardization has the potential to come into conflict with some of these water reuse and water, um, water neutral strategies in that Many of these strategies, you know, reverse osmosis requires really high pressures to push the water through the membrane. That's energy intensive. Depending on your power source, that could increase a fab plants or a manufacturing plants or a textiles plants emissions, even as they're trying to conserve water. So really looking at technologies that reduce the energy um, requirements of these alternative water source, water recycling, desalination, that's where the intersection, that's where the next intersection is going to come. Because right now, the two conservations, um, the two climate, the two climate initiatives are, are at odds at times. And, and are we seeing formal or informal moves uh, along the idea of water use? Um, or, or dealing with water use in the same way that we've seen for, for example, emissions? Um, not that I'm aware of, um, right now, again, it's been, I've been out of the, the area for a little bit, but I, uh, I have, I'm not aware of any formal requirements, but much like the, the standardizations with emissions, it's the informal pressure from society and society's, um, desires, the consumer power that then pushes the formalization. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if water conservation, um, comes next. And where does China stand in all of this? Because, you know, well, well, China is obviously engaged in the semiconductor industry. I think one of China's biggest problems is just overall water availability. They have entire cities that have that have drained their water supplies. Um, there's some very significant concerns uh, in China for water use, water management and things of that sort. Where is China in the in the technology space or in the application of the technology space for um, water management? They aren't far behind. Um, I would say that the, I would watch the part, an ongoing partnership with Israel. Um, it, it was a few years ago that I, that I looked into this, but and it was more towards uh, personal domestic consumption of water to help alleviate some of those problems that you just mentioned. Um, but, you know, looking at partnerships with Israel technology-wise in terms of water recycling is where I would see the the most likely path going forward, but China's also seeking 
to address this issue through through state state funding, state sponsored um, initiatives, etc. So they see the the same problem that Taiwan and the United States face, and they'll address it in a similar way they have addressed other other resource issues by pushing state funding towards it. Um, but but they do need much like they need um, other technological partnerships, they, they will probably t partner with either Singapore or Israel on this front. And, and I, I guess in, you know, we're, we're, we're pushing up against time here, but as we, as we come to the end, as we, as we think about um, more, I guess, less predictable uh, rainfall, precipitation, water flow, due both to climactic issues, to use issues, to um, uh, e expansion of urban areas to changes in the, in the landscape and landscape use and things of that sort. Uh, where should we be looking over the next, say, five, five years, ten years, in regards to these either these water technologies, the the geopolitical stresses from this, or uh, in looking for maybe breakthroughs that are coming along in association with things like the semiconductor industry. I think that um, actually this is going to be probably a boring answer, but the United States, um, given the focus on the, the the West right now, the support um, in other the government support for materials science because that's where the advancements are going to come. Um, it's where they came previously. It's where they're going to continue coming. So the advancement in nanotechnology, the the support for nanotechnology. So really looking at at your your typical technological powerhouses. You're looking at the United States. You're looking at China. You're looking at Japan and Korea in in those fronts. Um, and then it, adding the smaller players of Israel and Singapore um, because of their their water the water issues. But not looking. You know the the breakthrough may not come and probably won't come from a water-specific research, but really looking at breakthroughs in nanotechnology, um, graphene ma manufacturing, et cetera, um, is where I would look. Excellent. Um, any, any final thoughts on what people should be paying attention to as we, uh, as we continue to monitor these types of uh, shifts in the way in which the climate impacts uh, technology? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I don't have any. I think this conversation has been great. It's a reminder to look beyond the the headline and look beyond the the initial debate or concern and really dig deeper to those those constraints that every player is facing because those constraints are going to really be what determines the outcome. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for for this conversation today. Thank you so much for having it with me, Roger. Yep. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Dr. Rebecca Keller-Friedman, an independent advisor and analyst who spent more than a decade assessing the intersection of disruptive technologies and geopolitics. If you would like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of shifting global geopolitical balances, visit rainnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.